Stay tuned to acure.org for the latest updates on the world's only conference dedicated to cardiac unloading and heart recovery at acure.org. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the final Heart Sounds podcast of 2023. This is my favorite podcast of the year when I turn the microphones around on the TCTMD reporters to ask them about their most memorable story of the last 12 months. Sometimes they choose the pieces that cause them the most stress, or the study that packed a convention center to the rafters, and will also turn up on our top 10 stories list of the year. Other times they choose an article or interview that I, and perhaps you, have long ago forgotten about. Over the next 25 minutes, you'll hear from Yael Maxwell, Laura McEwen, Michael O'Reardon, Caitlin Cox, and Todd Neal. I will play these for you back to back in that order. Let's jump in. Hello, Yael. Welcome to our end of year podcast, where we like to talk about top stories of the year or most memorable stories. What one have you got for us? Thanks, Shelley. The story that I picked uh, was a story that I wrote in April uh, about ChatGPT and how journals started coming up with policies to ban its use as an author in scientific papers. This was something that just caught me off guard because it had never occurred to me that this would be something that would need to be evolved as a policy. But of course, chat GBT really came out of nowhere over the past year. And I think the journals were scrambling to figure out what to do with it, just as we were scrambling in other aspects of our lives to figure out how we could use this new technology, but how we might have to put some more parameters in place. And of course, that's still going on. We had had one of the journalists on the team actually send us sort of an alarmist email at an earlier time point. Do you want to remind us about that? Yeah, sure. It was last December and I'd been reporting on AI in medicine for a while, but I'd never heard of ChatGPT. And our colleague, Caitlin Cox, sent us kind of a fun little email basically saying that AI was coming for our jobs. She'd asked ChatGPT to write an article in the style of herself and in the style of Shelley Wood and others of us started playing around with it. And it was quite interesting to see the responses come out of this AI. And while I think we were all a little bit amused more than anything at the time, it, it kind of only started to sink in this spring that this tool could have more profound implications, especially in the world of scientific publishing. And when I started working on this story, I just started playing around with it. And I asked it whether it would be ethical, if you will, for ChatGPT to be credited as uh, an author on a scientific paper. And what it said was kind of interesting to me. In the end, you actually used that as your intro for this piece. And we're going to hope that people will go and dig it up. It came out on April 5th of 2023, and they can search ChatGPT to find it. But people you spoke with actually raised some interesting ideas that perhaps you had thought of at the outset. I certainly hadn't, because for many people, there would be benefits to using a, an AI tool like this to help them write. Do you want to just speak to that? Because I think we sort of went into this thinking, oh, this is sort of almost plagiarism or cheating. Yeah, there were a lot of points brought up that I really hadn't considered before uh, researching this piece, mostly because this was such a new tool. It had only been launched last year and a lot of people, you know, as I said, I had been looking at it as more of a, a fun little toy, but it, it came out as I was doing interviews 
that there are a lot of practical implications for a tool such as this, especially for scientists and researchers that do not speak English as their first language. There are a lot of prompts you can give it to help guide your research, help guide an outline for a paper. But there is this gray line of what is too much for a tool to do to then pass off as human-created content. And I think that's really where a lot of the questions started to come from. When you're a scientific journal, you're publishing content that is supposed to be created by humans. And if it's not, that can raise some eyebrows, definitely. So very briefly, where did journals land with this? If someone uses ChatGPT to help them write a paper, what do most of the journals have to say about it, if not all? So everyone that I spoke to for this story pretty much said point blank that ChatGPT cannot be listed as an author on a scientific paper. A variety of journals came out with formal uh, rules, regulations banning the use of ChatGPT as an author, but not banning the use of ChatGPT or other AI tools to help in some circumstances create imagery or infographics, but you do have to disclose that. And I think that was the biggest takeaway at the end is that disclosure of how AI is used. Okay. Well, thank you very much for reminding us a bit about that story. I think you were a little bit ahead of the curve and I'm sure you'll be watching it in the months and years to come. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the Heart Sounds podcast, Laura. We are talking most memorable stories of the year. What have you got for us? Well, it's always tough when you write over 100 cardiology stories a year to pick one, but I have been covering the paclitaxel mortality signal story for a long time. And in July, we got word that the FDA had finally lifted the restrictions on the use of paclitaxel-based therapies in peripheral vascular interventions. We're now this month at five years since Dr. Katsanos published his meta-analysis suggesting a heightened risk of all-cause death at two years and beyond in patients with PAD treated with a variety of paclitaxel-based balloons or stents. And the FDA announcement seemingly came out of nowhere, though. I, I appreciated that Everyone was happy about it because they worked hard to refute the signal by fixing issues with the data, finding missing data, showing that there was no signal in real-world Medicare patients. But still, I thought to myself, what was the linchpin that made FDA say, now is the time to reverse our decision when they've been asked multiple times in the past about it and they had no clear timeline for lifting it? Yeah, I remember you You covered that story. It was breaking news, but it took a little bit of time to figure out why the FDA was doing this at this time. We, you certainly had been speaking with people who would have liked to have had that happen a bit earlier. But what did you find out? Right. So it turned out that we had to wait a couple of months um, to see what the FDA had access to. And that was an updated patient-level meta-analysis. It was published in Lancet and presented at TCT, and it was more than 2,600 patients with 4.9 years of follow-up, and it showed no association between paclitaxel device exposure and risk of death. And I think that felt like 
you know, here's the end, potentially. We, we finally know now what FDA saw that made them say, let's reverse this decision. So that was kind of exciting, I think. Yeah, that was a session at the TCT meeting that I popped into as well, and I, I know you were there, and it really had uh, collected a lot of the people together who were the ones who were first sort of on their heels when they first saw the analysis by Dr. Katsanos, and then the ones that have been working away towards resolving that signal as best as possible. I mean, these devices will now be back in use. A lot of people seem pleased about that, but it'll definitely be something I'm sure that people will be keeping an eye on in, in years to come. Yeah, I think so. I think there's still a couple of outstanding questions that some people might have, not everyone, but maybe a few people have. And so it'll be interesting to see what else happens. But I think for the most part, we are done with this issue. Well, you've done a great job covering it over the years. One thing that you've shone a light on well, I think, is that this in many ways, as much as it was a setback for the field, it also did something good, which was really point to all of the missing data that had been in those early PAD trials. Can you speak to that? What will be the lasting impact of this whole controversy on the field of peripheral disease research? Yeah, I think, you know, Sahil Parikh, who's been instrumental in this research, has said that going forward, it's really going to be mandated that researchers are on top of this. They really have to follow these patients and not just the patients who are treated, but the patients in the control arms, because it turned out that those patients were very important in the follow-up. And so I think we're going to see much stricter control of that in the future. Yeah. Well, I think that's also thanks to you and other journalists who have been covering this controversy and making those points. I think industry has really had to sit up and listen. Thank you for reminding us of that story, Laura, and thank you for all your work covering it over, yeah, a whole five-year period. Thanks. All right, Michael, we are talking about your most memorable story of the year. I know it's hard to choose one. What have you got for us? I would probably say it would be the mid-range follow-up to the low-risk TABR trials would probably be my most interesting. Partner three was five years, and then it was four years for the low-risk Evolute trial. So that would probably be the most memorable one that I covered this year. And I covered that at TCT this year, and the papers were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah, in fact, the low-risk Evolute data, the three years, had been presented at the ACC meeting earlier this year. So the seeing the four-year data at TCT was really so that people could get a peek at some of that mid-range follow-up a little bit side-by-side. Side. However, we were told quite sternly that we shouldn't do that, even though that's what everybody was doing. Tell us a bit about what that was like, because you saw both presentations, you saw what the data looks like, uh, but it was difficult not to draw different conclusions, perhaps. Sure. And I will echo that point as well, that we are constantly told never to compare two different trials. They, they are different patient populations, and there's a lot of nuance just sort of in that sort of broad low risk category and particularly when you're comparing the comparator arm is a, a surgery arm you know so we are always warned not to um, not to make comparisons like that but I, I think people 
And I think physicians in general, too, there's a natural inclination to kind of look at these and say, are we seeing the same results with the two valves? And not to make this a head-to-head comparison, because that's, like I say, you're not meant to do that. There were definitely differences in the outcomes. The mortality curves, particular, caught a lot of people's attention. There was a bit of a, there was a crossing of sort of that sort of mortality such that it was numerically higher, not statistically significant, uh, numerically higher with uh, TABI in the partner trial, but we didn't see such a, such a trend in, in the Evolute low risk trial. And Dr. Leon, when he presented the results, there was also a deep dive session at TCT as well. And he did a very rigorous analysis of just sort of what the causes of death were and sort of the adjudication of cardiovascular mortality in partner three. So people were paying attention to the mortality differences, but at the end of the day, truly, as the statisticians say, you can't really kind of make these comparisons between the two different trials. At the London Valves meeting, which was a couple weeks later, almost four weeks later, I guess I was at that one. And it was interesting because both Dr. Leon and Dr. Reardon re-presented the data very briefly in a special session. And then both of them, with a bit of prodding, said that they will continue to provide incremental follow-up. Dr. Reardon says he's going to do it every single year out to 10 years. And Dr. Leon said he would actually release eight-year data as well as 10-year. So I think that speaks to how much people are very keen not only to see these longer-term results, but also they do kind of want to see them marching in step. I also wanted to mention you made it to the EACS meeting this year, which is the first time we've gone to the European Surgical Meeting. And in fact, you said that was quite a good experience. The surgeons were very glad to see some coverage of their meeting and made a lot of time to speak with you about these things. So the surgical perspective is very different. You know, they have this, they have a surgery where they can sort of get these sort of great results. But broadly speaking about the surgical meeting, I I did. I had a really good time over there. I really enjoyed the uh, presentations. It was nice to talk to surgeons to get their perspective. And one thing that I did see kind of play out in sort of real life was that some of the antagonism that you see sort of online doesn't exist in real life. I mean, I know that might sound unsurprising to people that uh, interact with the surgeons and the heart team on a daily basis, but the surgeons were really sort of amiable and really sort of personable in the sense of they enjoy what they do, but they also like the fact that there is sort of a, a competing technology because what they want to do is offer the best outcomes to the patients. I think one thing we've seen is that more and more surgeons are becoming structural interventionalists as well. And they actually have the skills to offer both types of therapy to their patients. So that's another reason driving their interest in knowing which therapy is better and when. I will say the reason that four and five year data from these Evolute partner trials are are, are so important is just given the, the low risk status of these patients being so young and these valves having to last for the rest of the patient's lifetime, which could exceed 20 something years. Well, these aren't easy stories to cover, Mike. And looking back at TCT, I remember when you were struggling to pull that story together, I thought, gosh, why did I make him combine both of these studies in a single story, but in fact, they couldn't have been separate. They needed to be together. So thank you for jumping in and, and tackling that as you always do. It did make for a long day, but I think I think we got it right. Thank you for walking us backwards through that once again. No problem. Bye.
Caitlin, you are up next for our end of year Heart Sounds podcast. What was your most memorable story of the year? So for me, it was the FDA's approval of colchicine as the first anti-inflammatory indicated for reducing CV events. That was a long time in the making. So it was interesting to see that come through. And um, I'm excited to see how it plays out. Yeah, that was just looking at some of our statistics, definitely one of the most clicked upon stories of the year. I think people are used to hearing for decades now that statins also have anti-inflammatory effects and that's part of their benefit. And then we've seen other drugs tested in this setting. You've done some of those stories as well over the years. For sure. It's been quite the saga. I mean, hanakinumab originally looked promising. And then it wasn't uh, pursued by the manufacturer in the end when the FDA wasn't too enthusiastic about that. And that was like, what, four years ago or so? Mm. And here we are with colchicine, which is a drug that's been around for many, many years for gout and a couple other uses. And here we are today. Not so simple, though, is it? I think many people saw this as a drug that had been around for some time. They'd perhaps be able to lay their hands on it for patients. But as some of your coverage has discussed, this hasn't proved seamless. Want to speak to that point? Yeah, it has not. So even before Lodoco was approved, I'd had several stories about the cost of colchicine, which elsewhere in the world is as little as pennies a day, but because of some rather complicated regulatory issues in the United States, uh, I believe at one point it was around $5 uh, and people were concerned about that. And now with the new approval, I'm seeing anything in the range of 175 with a coupon, $300 with a coupon, up to somewhere around 600, depending on the source uh, for a month's supply. And that's at the point, yeah, yeah, and it's at, The thing is, it's a particular dose when it's for the CV indication, which is 0.6 milligrams, and the gout is 0.5. So very slight difference, but it does make a difference when you're interpreting the trial data, as I understand it. And I think insurance might be taking it to heart. I'm I'm not privy to those details. Sure. Well, we will keep on top of that, but it does at least nail down a hypothesis. Well, the the clinical trials had done this, but the approval of this really seals for many people the notion that tackling inflammation in coronary disease was an important target and that if they could find the right agent to do something about it, there would be added benefit of pursuing that kind of disease mechanism as well. And I think your stories have really helped illuminate that for people. So yeah, I think that's a good choice for 2023. Yeah, I think the next thing will be seeing how long it takes before HSCRP is regularly measured in clinical practice, because without that information, it may be hard to know what level of inflammation people have and whether or not it's time to do something about it. So I I suspect I'll be writing about that in the coming years. I bet you're right. Well, thanks so much, Caitlin, for hopping on a call here to talk about it with me. No problem. Thank you for coming on the Heart Sounds podcast for your favorite podcast of the year, Todd. What was your most memorable story of the year gone by? I don't know about most memorable, but the one that kind of stuck with me the most, maybe because it was somewhat recent, was SELECT, the trial of uh, semaglutide in in patients at high cardiovascular risk uh, without diabetes. It kind of stuck in my mind just because it it was a big trial and the way it was received at the at the AHA when it was presented was, you know, with a lot of excitement. And that's always kind of, it makes it more fun for us doing our jobs, I think, when doctors are excited about the findings. 
yeah, Select will go down as one of the biggest studies of recent years. And I suppose if we had skipped that on the podcast, that would have suggested that we're a little off in terms of what we think big news is. Because as you point out, that was a packed auditorium at AHA. Standing room only is how it was described. I managed to find a seat, but it, you know, in the post-pandemic world, that was a packed audience. It was one of the, the largest audiences that I've seen, you know, in recent memory, definitely in the last couple of years since people started heading out to meetings. And I think that definitely speaks to the interest in, in the findings. There's so much more to know here. We've been covering not only this particular agent, but the other GLP-1s and the other drugs that are targeting GLP. And I feel like this, even though we knew the top line results ahead of time, seeing all of this data in one place, seeing the details, it really, as people kept saying, showed our audience, cardiologists, that actually this is a drug for cardiovascular disease, or certainly that's the message many were trying to transmit. Not everybody agreed with the idea that this will be as big of a splash as perhaps that PAC session would imply. What are the types of questions you think going forward that, that people are asking now and, and hoping to study? Uh, well, I think from the research perspective, there was some talk about how it's having such a, a big benefit. Is it just the weight loss or <clears throat> is there some sort of direct effect from the drug itself? And it doesn't really seem like there's a clear answer to that question necessarily. So I think people will be looking into that. And then also there's, you know, people are excited about the possibilities that these findings raise, but there's definitely still some obstacles out there that are kind of standing in the way that people brought up. One is cost, you know, the out-of-pocket cost or even the cost with insurance and the copay could be prohibitive for a lot of people. And there's one quote for about $1,300 a month, you know, even with insurance and Medicare doesn't currently cover it either. So people are questioning how big of an impact it can have with that. There also are some GI side effects that come along with it. So there's maybe some questions about how well people will be able to stay on the drug uh, long term necessarily to get all the benefits. So those are some of the questions I think that people still have about this, but, but they're definitely um, impressed by the full results after having heard the top line result of a 20% relative risk reduction in the, in the primary endpoint. I think the AHA also did something interesting with this session. It was the first late-breaking science session of the AHA meeting. And rather than have it be backed up by a couple other trials in the same session, they instead paired it with a health equity-focused obesity talk. And I won't go into the details of that because people can certainly find that in your coverage on TCTMD. But it did speak to the piece that you are talking about at one level, which is that this is a very expensive agent. And unless access is equitable, it will only serve to widen some of the gaps in not only the U.S. healthcare system, but others, I'm sure. That is seen as one of the potential limitations with the cost, you know, just getting access to it. And even with the trial itself, there was some discussion about how the results don't necessarily reflect what the population looks like. Most weight loss trials, multiple people noted, include more women generally, but the proportion of women in this trial was was lower, something in the range of one third, I think. So there's definitely some talk about the the equity question there and, and you know how these findings can apply to all groups across the population. Yeah. Thank you for doing a great job with that story, Todd, and thank you for telling us a bit about it here today. Thank you for having me. 
Leaving myself for last, I do not do a lot of day-to-day -day writing anymore with so much great work being done by my team. But if I had to choose one topic I covered that gave me all the old feels, I would pick the story I did about nurse practitioners being the lead operators on TAVI procedures. As far as I know, this isn't happening widely, but it certainly did at the world-renowned Glenfield Hospital in the United Kingdom. We know this because someone thought it would be a good idea to congratulate that nurse practitioner back in June on Twitter. As you likely know, this blew up on social media. Tweets were deleted, then issued, then more were deleted. I spoke to several physicians on and off the record and tried and failed to get an interview with the nurse practitioner and senior cardiologist at the heart of this controversy. This, of course, touched on much broader issues of doctor shortages, training opportunities, scope creep, and how prominent medical organizations are struggling to strike the balance between standing up for their members while also being strong allies and mentors to their healthcare colleagues. A search of ANP on TCTMD will turn up that story. In fact, a minute or two with our search tool will pull up all of the stories you've heard about here today. If you need to escape some in-laws over the holiday season, I give you TCTMD search. That is it for the Heart Sounds podcast for 2023. Thank you to Yael, Laura, Mike, Caitlin, and Todd for agreeing to come on this podcast every December and for all the podcast contributions, not to mention great journalism throughout the year. Big thanks also to Matt Pona, who has been producing this podcast for most of 2023. Thank you to Senior Director for the Editorial Group, Stephanie Gutch. Our content and marketing support, especially Hannah Della Bella, Sam Montgomery, and Sophia Cyprian, and our senior clinical editor, Amas Lamas. Thanks finally to all of you for tuning in to Heart Sounds. Hope to see you back here in 2024. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD featuring Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson and Rock's Heart Radio with Dr. Roxanna Moran. All new episodes are available on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud.